You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist, and we are taking all of your science-related questions and thoughts. 072 that's the WhatsApp line. Or you can give us a call to chat to Dr. Chris Smith, who is the knower of all things. I will, I will st- stay strong and say Noah of all things, and he'll answer those for you. 011-8830702. Doctor, happy Monday. How are you doing? Oh, happy Monday. I'm all right, but I've been assailed by a seasonal culprit, you know, the usual seasonal suspects that cause, you know, respiratory infections and stuff oh. like that. So some kind of nasty virus is... Please is don't give it to me over the, the airwaves. I'll try not to. I'll try and I've, I've quarantined myself at home away from everybody. I'm not going to the office. I've said to everyone, I won't come in and inflict this upon you because it's pretty horrible. But um doesn't seem to be affecting my brain, just my ability to speak. So hopefully it'll hold out. Can I ask a question? Do you think, and this is, I don't know, I don't think any studies have been done yet, but do you think our habits when it came to colds and flus, um, actually changed to being more protective towards one another after COVID? Because now I'm seeing people who they have a little, just a bit of a cough and they're putting the mask on or they're full on not coming to work because they don't even want to take chances. I think that the phrase for the not coming to work because they don't want to take chances, I think that's called shirking from home, but I might be (laughs) wrong. we, I think, are more cognizant of the spread of infection. Some people are. Some people remain impossible to educate, though, don't they? And they're the ones that can be the super spreaders. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a manager for a BBC radio station, and she said to me that uh, as all the staff who are ill have to come to her to say, I need to go home, I'm not very well, she said, I'm trying to educate them that what you don't do is come and stand over my desk and then demonstrate just how ill you are by coughing your guts up all <laughs> over me. And I said, well, maybe they're just affecting this in order to, to try to get sympathy. I don't know. But I think some people definitely are more aware. Yes. We, we have raised, I think, the general level, the average level of awareness of how things spread, how diseases go around, the sorts of patterns they follow, etc. So I think people are better educated, but I think we're rapidly sliding back to what we used to call normal. And yes. people are beginning to sort of abandon a lot of those practices. And, and in some respects, that's a good thing because we can't be slaves to these viruses forever. And in fact, by by not catching anything for several years, I wrote a piece for one of our uh, newspapers a few weeks ago uh, looking at why people are all complaining because many, many people are complaining. They've got an everlasting cold mm. and we're dubbing the phenomenon immunity deficit because for two or three years, people caught far fewer than the usual four to five colds they would have caught every year and we weren't going out rubbing shoulders with everybody in cinemas and supermarkets and so on so people weren't catching things Mm. and being exposed to things at anything like the normal rate and that would have had two effects one it would have infected you with stuff you hadn't had before and you'd have a chance to then get immunity to it but more importantly the hundreds of things you have caught before which you have learned to fight off you get an immunity boost by re-encountering them and if you don't encounter them your immune system forgets how to fight them your level of overall immunity falls and you become susceptible so when you come out of a a period of sustained non-ill health which is what we've all done as a sort of global population. You've got loads of people who are now susceptible, all rubbing alongside people who've got stuff to give away. And that's why we've had this slew of of sort of infections one after another in many places. But it's luckily on the way now. I think people are beginning to remind their immune system what it's there to do.
Definitely, we have to keep those immune systems working so that, uh, you know, our whole entire humanity can just move forward. I, I'm, I, for one, am very, very tired of being sick. But let's take your calls on 011-880-702. Paul in Randburg, go ahead. Hi, Dr. Claire. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi, hi. Um, uh, I want to be inherited ataxia and uninherited ataxia. What causes uninherited ataxia? I, I couldn't quite catch what you said you'd inherited. So uninherited ataxia, is that what you said, Paul? Yes, yes. So what causes un, inherited ataxia? inherited ataxia. Ataxia yes. means difficulties with movements. Yeah. And if there are some forms of ataxia, which are what we call yeah. acquired, if you have damage yeah. to part of your nervous system, this can yeah. result in a movement disorder. But some of these disorders, we know that they have a genetic cause. You can inherit those genes from your parents, and it depends whether it's a dominant or recessive condition, your chances of it manifesting in you. And those genes are concerned with the way in which the brain wires itself together or the way in which the certain cells are vulnerable to either not surviving long enough or building up something toxic that can kill them off. And you lose populations of cells. They're selectively vulnerable to loss amongst certain, in certain regions of the brain. And if this affects the motor circuits, then people can end up with uh, an ataxia, an abnormality of movement. There are many uh, ways in which this can happen. And uh, there's not just one single gene. We have 20,000 genes in a person and 80% of them are running in our nervous system or more. So there are lots of genes to choose from. So there are lots of genes that are linked to movement disorders. And it, it depends on the nature and behavior of that gene, what its pattern of inheritance is, whether you need two copies of the gene to be abnormal for you to get the condition or just one copy has what we call a dominant effect. But it will vary from one condition to the next. All right, let's take a question from Dimpo in Glen Vista. Hi, Dimpo. Hi. How are you? I'm good in you. Good. How old are you, Dimpo? Um, I'm eight years old. Eight years old. And what question do you have for Dr. Chris? Okay. Who had the first baby in the world? Who had the first baby in the world? That's a hard one. Ooh, Dr. Chris, who had the first baby in the world? <laughs> well, it depends whether we're talking about humans, our human ancestors, or the animals that gave rise to our human ancestors, or some of the first life on Earth, doesn't it? So, so, so Dimpo, do you, do you want to know specifically about human babies? Yes. Okay, as we are today, that baby. Yes. Okay. <laughs> an anatomically modern humans, that means us, have been around for, what, 100,000 years or so, maybe mm -hmm. a bit more. Mm -hmm. And before that, we, we had ancestors that we shared with other species of human-like creature, including Neanderthals and so on. So really, we have to say, well, somewhere back in the last 100 to 200,000 years, there was an anatomically modern human that... that gave the first baby but it's a very hard question to answer a simpler answer is to say well when did humans first come along and we know that that was about that time around about 100,000 200,000 years ago and our ancestors that they came from were maybe back a, a couple of million years maybe more 
and then before that it was a few million years to their ancestors and then you can trace it right back to about 500 million years ago when the first cells began to get together and make multicellular life things that weren't just like bacteria so really it depends on on how far back you want to go but babies specifically mammals maybe that's what we're talking about here mammals things that have a baby growing inside them that then mm. comes out in the same way we have a baby that happened maybe 120 130 million years ago so mammals have been around for at least that long maybe a bit longer so therefore if we're just talking about having a baby in, in the mammalian sense, you'd have to go back a couple of hundred, 150 million years, probably. So you don't, you don't know who it was. We don't know. Well, it I was think her Jabu. name was Valerie, but I might, maybe it was. <laughs> uh, no, I'll take Valerie. Her. Okay. Thank you so much, Timpo, for that question. Let's go to CD so in Pretoria. CD so. Hi, sorry, I'm in a kind of reading. My question is about missing. Why, as uh, human beings, are we likely to miss? For example, if you were to throw a stone at an object or maybe try to throw a piece of paper into a dustbin or even multiple chess questions, you are likely to miss as opposed to getting it right first time. Okay, and so why, why, why do you like miss things the first time? As in, if your eyes are seeing it and you, you think you're aiming correct, why do you never get it the first time? Yeah. <laughs> well, in the, in the brain. Just hold on, CD. So let's, let's take this answer. I'll come back to you in a moment. Yes, doctor? In the brain is a pattern of connections which is effectively a model of when i do this this happens yes and so your brain will make a prediction about where the thing is you are aiming at what the object is that you are throwing how heavy it is how much wind resistance it's going to create and therefore how hard to make your muscles work to throw it and you're trying to take into account all of the different things that could vary the objects wind resistance its mass, mass of your arm, the distance to the object, how big the object or receptacle is you're aiming at, if it's a basketball going into a basket. So you're making a lot of predictions. Whenever you do anything, there are things that happen the way the body expects to happen, and then there are things that are not that what you expect to happen. Let me explain. All the time when I'm moving, speaking, touching something, reaching out to do something, writing, my brain is predicting where my fingers are going to end up, where my feet are going to end up, where my arms are going to end up. And it's then asking itself, when I've done the thing, did the way I predicted it would work end up what was happening? And if what happened was different to what your brain thought was going to happen, it activates a learning circuit that then refines the movement so that the next time you make the movement, it's a bit better. So it uses a rough prediction of what it thinks based on prior knowledge will happen when you throw that thing at the bin or that ball of paper in the bin. And then if it goes according to plan, big reward, mental sort of inside your head, uh, round of applause, well done, uh, don't change anything. If it goes wrong and the piece of paper doesn't go in the bin, it goes next to the bin, your brain says, what went wrong? And it changes the pattern of throwing informed by where your eyes said it thinks it went wrong the last time. And slowly we get better and better and better. And you can show this. If you give people a new kind of thing to do, you can show how they make a rough guesstimate the first time. And then each time they get a bit better and a bit better. And it takes a few trials. 
and then usually they've got it about as good as it's going to get. And if you go to the fairground and you have to throw ping pong balls into jam jars or something, they only give you three balls because usually it takes the brain at least three goes to get its eye in to where it's going wrong and how to get it better. But by then your go is over. So, the, the, so it is true that the house always wins in gambling. The house always wins. <laughs> and I'm just wondering then what does that mean for lucky shots? Well, obviously, it, sometimes you're, are you going to be lucky and you never thought you would? You just throw the ball over your shoulder and it goes in the basket or whatever. But sometimes you will throw a shot and your predictions are entirely correct and in it goes. And under those circumstances, the brain would say, what I thought was going to happen did happen. I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to leave the, the network that's making that prediction untouched. But most of the time, there is some degree of, of change needed because it's not going to quite conform to what you thought it would. And you just activate some electrical signals that, that just refine that prediction a little bit. So next time you do it, it's a little bit better. Mm, mm. Pra All right. Practice really does make perfect. Yes, indeed. Um, there's a question here that says, what is the purpose of the human fingernail? Once polish is removed, they discolor and soften. Mm. Well, what the nail does, in the same way as your toenails give your toes rigidity, the fingernail gives the end of your finger, the pulp of your finger, which is the soft, spongy bit, rigidity. And as well as being uh, useful for picking bits of sellotape that someone's left on the desk that shouldn't be there away, or squeezing spots and so on, fingernails are really good for giving that additional rigidity. And when you're running a finger over a surface, that rigidity means that your finger is better able to interpret the texture of a surface. So when you put your finger into your pocket to find a coin, you can run your finger around the edge of the coin, fill the shape and size of it, and work out, yes, that's the, the correct value denomination of coin, for example. And so nails really do help us to do that, as well as occasionally helping to give us extra grip on things. So they would have been dispensed with by nature a long time ago, in evolutionary terms, if they weren't conferring some kind of advantage. And I think it's because they make your fingers a bit more rigid, therefore they give you a better grip on things and a bit better ability to explore surfaces. Otherwise, nature would have got rid of them. Okay, one question says, at what stage or years does doctor think the next human transformation will be from Homo naledi to current human species? Well, of course, Homo naledi um, found in South Africa was well, date dates back uh, from uh, a little while ago. I mean that that's a long, a lot, lot, lot older than we are. Um, that that's that is not. Although it's Homo, which is part of the same line that ultimately gives rise to or runs in parallel with us, it is not our direct ancestor, and it certainly is not one that, that turned into us and was was around um, and has been gone a long time. So at the moment, we are the only human species on Earth now. There, there were a number of different species in parallel of Homo that were alive back in time. There were the Hobbit people um, that lived um, uh, maybe until as recently as 10,000 years ago. There were Neanderthal people that were living in around about 40,000 years ago. And then us, anatomically modern Homo sapiens sapiens, they disappeared. And now we're left as just the only example of, of Homo currently on Earth as it is at the moment. But we're still evolving. We haven't stopped evolving. We are responding all the time to the selective pressure of the environment in which we live. And those selective pressures are continuously changing as we develop new technologies and change the way we live our lives and what we do with our bodies, the kinds of things that we, we do to ourselves, the kinds of things that we eat, the environment we inhabit. Those all apply a selective pressure and will select from the population combinations of genes which are more successful and they will remove from the population 
particular genetic traits which under that environment are less successful. So we're always evolving, we're always changing. Those mechanisms haven't uh, gone away in any way, but that takes a long, long time to happen. And it happens over hundreds of thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So we're not going to see us evolve in a step change sort of way while we're here. It happens uh, over a very long time scale. Another question from Nelson. Hi, Professor. I've noted that hardy dog birds eat or feed on small dogs' poo. Is their original is is this their original natural disposition or through scientific manipulation, brains reorientation? Well, there's an old saying that one man's trash is another man's treasure, and there are lots of things in poo which some animals can extract all kinds of nutrients from because every animal is different and its intestine is different and there are things that it can extract from food and there are things that it can't extract from food and that's what it throws away as its waste. So there are some animals that nevertheless can extract those things because they have the right gut makeup to get the nutrients that other animals can't. There's a lot of phosphorus which is in excrement. There are other things including seeds and pips and that kind of thing which might not have been broken down very well by the animal that swallowed them. There may be whole bits of food that have gone through undigested. So there are a range of different things that animals can get by picking through poo. And uh, in fact some animals eat their own poo because the first time through the enzymes that they need to break open some of the, the, the tougher woodier bits of the food are not present in the bit of the digestive tract upstream of where they can do the absorption. So rabbits, for example, will pass a bunch of soft poo to start with that they've from their food they've just eaten, which has now had all the cellulose, the woody material, broken down by their gut bacteria. They then reconsume those poos and that gives them access to that uh, material that's now been broken down by the bacteria lower down their gut which they then absorb and that's how they get their energy and then they go outside and they do a second batch of poos which are much harder and they certainly don't eat those all right dr chris smith always a good time chatting to you and exploring these very interesting science related questions and answers we're back together next week